Good evening, Crypt Keeper Army, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of Cryptique, blasting off into the ether from the Free Energy Studios. As always, we ask that you like, subscribe, tell a friend, etc., etc., etc. Send us case suggestions at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. I'm joined, as always, by my brother from another mother, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Went to Johnson shut-ins on uh, Saturday and kind of slipped a little bit and slammed my kidney into a rock. And now I have what feels like a golf ball in my back. So other than that, I'm ready to kick ass and take names. <laughs> All right. So you've heard us talk about the paranormal, hidden history, conspiracy theories, and some other things. But tonight's show is the epitome of forbidden knowledge. Tonight, we're excited to have Miguel Connor on the show. He's a legit expert on Gnosticism. What's Gnosticism, you ask? Let's find out from the man himself. Welcome, Miguel Connor. First off, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where our listeners can really sink their teeth into what Gnosticism really is. Oh, dear. Uh, my background. It's a big question. <laughs> Yeah, that is a big question, and the best answer is when I have no idea. I think I was uh, I was doing um, sort of thinking about the show and my future about a month ago, and I said, "Well, what is where am I supposed to go?" And this voice said, "You're not in control. There is no Miguel," and it was one of the best uh, sort of voices from above I'd heard. My ego was a bit insulted, but I was like, no, there's, there's a flow. I mean, the whole idea of Gnosticism is that we are in a simulation and that who we are is also a simulation. The world's a simulation. We are a simulation as above, so below, as Hermes said. So the key is to go within to find uh, deeper truths. But as a human being or a meat sack, as I like to <laughs> call our species, our wonderful species. Uh, I was always interested in the higher questions or the big questions of life. Why are we here? What is evil? Why do we suffer? Is there life after death and so forth? So I've always been very curious and I, uh, I've done so much as I call it spiritual hitchhiking, originally raised Roman Catholic. My mom was very ecumenical and open-minded, so I had a lot of uh, uh, content that she'd give me in the form of mythology, other religions, and I went uh, in my teens as an adult on a lot of uh, safaris to different religions, tried different uh, faiths, adopted them, went to ashrams, mosques, uh, you name it, and uh, Gnosticism was the one that in my 30s just seemed to seemed to fit better and uh, also too like many uh, seekers I never felt I belong in this world I always felt that there was something off that the game was rigged that uh, yeah there was something terribly wrong with this universe and our culture and I was always sort of an outsider misfit who couldn't fit into any system or whatever I guess you call them introverts these days but uh, whatever you want to call them so with all that I would say that uh, the Gnostic philosophy, theology, sometimes I just like to say the Gnostic aesthetic. I think we all religions are art and we all must create art and become art. 
it really just works for me and it works for my worldview and this is translated to writing a few books on Gnosticism, the podcast Aeon Byte, uh, creating content on it and so forth. I mean, there's some days which I wish I could just take the blue pill <laughs> and just talk about Catholicism or something for one day or something that's a lot more mainstream and safe. Well, that's kind of where we're coming from. Uh, Ryan was raised Roman Catholic, and I converted about 17 years ago. And, you know, the religious practice itself was enticing, but the more we look at what the church is doing, it's really getting hard to ignore for people that are what I would consider awake. And so I, I just, I have this burning question I've been wanting to ask you. So if we are looking inward for spiritual knowledge in relation to religion, whatever religion that may be, are we Gnostics or are these Gnostic tendencies? Or do you have to uh, sort of say, I consider myself a Gnostic to be I guess, put in that category or how does that work? Yeah, I wouldn't get to worry about terms. I don't, I rarely, rarely, rarely do I call myself a Gnostic. I mean, they're gone. You do have the Mandeans today and the Yassidi and some Sufi orders and some Kabbalists who are definitely uh, part of the Gnostic tradition. But for the most part, the Gnostics are gone. I call myself a heretic, but within every tradition, there is always that esoteric, I want to look inward part of it. I mean, uh, there's that wing, if you would, that says, again, I want to have a mystical experience. I want to uh, get out of normative consciousness and experience the totality of reality in the universe and commune with higher forms of intelligence. So that's always there in every religion. I mean, the Catholic religion has a very good tradition of that. Gnosticism is just a bit different because it, uh, it tends, unlike all other religions or most religions, uh, I guess you could put Buddhism in that camp, which is uh, the cousin of Gnosticism. It does reject uh, normative reality. It, it does reject uh, the ego or the persona that we are and really tries to dissipate what it sees as illusions or uh, holograms or or coding from bad angels, as the Gnostics would say. So that's what it is. But the Gnostics really does come from the mystery religion tradition. And you had those in ancient times, ancient Egypt, Greco-Roman times, where individuals would want to go on this very secretive ritual that uh, could take months to prepare and would take you down into the sort of underworld which you could say maybe it's your inner world to face these demons i guess your your trauma if you want to get psychological you were facing your trauma and then eventually you would rise with a certain god whether it was persephone or cyrus and rise with them in a new life and be able to go up to the heavenly realms or or, or olympus or whatever it is and the Gnostics were certainly part of that tradition. I mean, even one church father, Hippolytus, says, uh, talking about the Nassines, the serpent Gnostics who worship serpents, they said that it was a dead ringer 
for the Eleusinian mystery. So there is always that part, yeah, that part of religion that uh, gives those who have different appetites who want to go into a stillness, into an inner world and explore higher worlds. And I wouldn't even knock the Catholic Church because Jung did say, and this is yeah, early 20th century, that the Catholic Church was still the only religion in the West that could offer you an inner world. And it's true. I mean, I like going to Catholic Mass and because it is such a platform and a framework for sort of a mini mystery religion. It's so alchemical. I mean, you go in there and if you've got a good church and they've got incense and they're singing in Latin and you're step and you're standing up right, and you're saying prayers, your mantras and you're closing your eyes. And if you let yourself go, you're going to go on this journey with this dying and rising Godman called Jesus. And you die with him. You experience his pain, his, you know, instead of being dismembered like Osiris or killed like Dionysus. He has his own form of death, and at the end of the Mass, you rise and you become like Jesus. So there is that uh, part, and you know you don't have to really give a shit about what the shenanigans <laughs> the Church is doing outside. The The Mass is still a very powerful, it's magical. I mean, it's almost it's mm -hmm. very occult if you do, uh, do the Mass right. I don't know if you guys have seen, there was a show that came out last fall called um, Midnight Mass on I Netflix. I did, yes. And it, yeah, and it really shows you what uh, how occult the, the the mass is, and it really uh, shows you the beauty of faith and redemption within and outside of uh, the Catholic uh, framework. Well, that makes sense. We have been doing a shallow dive, and it is very technical. There's so much information that it's almost overwhelming, and. I think what we want to do is just to kind of give a Cliff Notes type version. And I know that that's probably uh, a little difficult because your knowledge is so vast on the topic that you want to get, you know, deep into it. Uh, but we just, we kind of want to just hit some. Uh... Yeah, kind of the more basic framework like you were saying with catholicism with catholicism it's jesus and redemption for us and god and we know who these figures are supposed to be but in the reading that jay and i were doing earlier it seems like gnosticism at its core is a form of spirituality that seems to value growth like you were saying jay by looking inward growth through your own spiritual experiences um, value through the morality that comes from yourself as opposed to ritual or rules put upon you by an external force. Uh, but it's it's hard, like you were saying, to wrap our minds around all of the intricacies of it. So it's, I think the audience would do well to have a, a basic explanation of what Gnosticism should be, and then we can kind of dive into the details that flesh out that framework. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be so hard <laughs> on yourself or anybody. I mean, if if you ask somebody to explain Buddhism in an hour, they won't be able to do it or uh, That's Hinduism a great point. or even Christianity. I mean, yeah, I mean there's so much about Christianity beyond the the death and sacrifice of Jesus, but uh sort of a um 
elevator explanation of Gnosticism. And there are many models. Uh, we have to keep in mind that the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, the, that treasure trove of so-called Gnostic Gospels was not, although discovered in 1945 in Upper Egypt, wasn't really translated into English until 1979. So we only have a few decades and there is still a lot of debate and adjustment from scholars about what exactly is Gnosticism. Yeah, we do have a lot of uh, heresy hunter expositions, some gospels here, but uh, we don't have uh, the the thousands of years that Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism have had to sort of find themselves. But uh, a elevator pitch would be, um, again, we live in a simulated reality. This simulated reality is controlled by the stellar wardens or cosmic ranchers that are often called the Archons. They are headed typically by a head Archon called the Demiurge, and this god is often associated with the tyrannical god of the Old Testament, although some Gnostic groups would associate him with Cronus or any sort of those managerial gods to the Gnostics. We've been cast in the Matrix and the the programmers who did the code are not the good guys, or at the very least, they're neutral. Some Gnostics did say, no, this uh, this place is just a cosmic gym and we're here to work out. Other Gnostics said, no, this is a, this is a terrible place. And uh, why are we here? Why did they trap us? Because according to the Gnostics, we all humans house a divine spark, a shard of infinity, a uh, essence from a transcendental unknown god the monad as uh, plato called him or the one this sort of uh, pure cosmic undivided consciousness that for whatever reasons lost some of his spark and fell into earth and these greedy beings the demiurge and his archons decided to create an illusion around it and feed off of our divine spark because it is our divine spark that actually fuels the universe and also feeds these uh, these supernatural or extraterrestrial beings. And uh, this is who we are. And yeah, that's basically kind of like the plot of the Matrix, except, except uh, instead of feeding off of uh, our divine spark, the machine is feeding off of our, uh, our brain waves, according to the Matrix. So our true origin is not here, but uh, not in the stars, but beyond the stars. Again, in this place with the Gnostics called the Pleroma, which is a state, more of a state of being. It is where the ultimate transcendental or alien god, as they called him. Yeah, the Gnostics had a very sci-fi sensibility mm -hmm. even 2,000 years ago. And uh, our job is to wake up to the reality of this construct and make contact with this alien god in order to awaken us further and allow our divine spark to shine so that eventually we can wake up as many people as possible and join and escape this matrix, this construct, this simulation. Now, how do you escape? Well, the, you have an awakening, but the escape was usually facilitated by these Gnostic revealers, as they were called. And these are these individuals that are often from higher worlds who come down to uh, share 
special teachings and information that would allow us to further wake up and experience uh, or again the expansion of our divine spark some of these figures were jesus zoroaster mary magdalene for example sophia the goddess sophia which is important mm -hmm. in the gnostic tradition some gnostics like the manichaeans put buddha on that lofty level and uh, they would teach us the again the these mysteries that would allow us to wake up to our true nature and these rituals were always ecstatic in nature the gnostics although it's a very you might say intellectual religion it uh, relies heavily on greek philosophy and persian philosophy it's at its core a ecstatic shamanistic religion you are meant to go into altered states of consciousness to basically get out of your head and take these astral flights towards the alien god now is this really out of body experiences or is it just going inward i always say it's the same difference again yeah as above so below said hermes uh, if you go journey beyond the stars or what do i like to say the journey to your true self is the same journey to the nearest star the journey however you think it's happening it is really a journey to finding your true self and as elaine pagel said to know yourself is to know god the true God, if you would. So that's an important thing about Gnosticism. It's not an intellectual, it is shamanistic, it is ecstatic. There was uh, church fathers used to call the Gnostics the sons and daughters of Pythagoras. And as other scholars said, Pythagoras was sort of influenced by uh, shamanistic forces from uh, beyond Persia. So I think that's, uh, that's a good uh, summary of Gnosticism. Obviously, there are other features and wrinkles to it. The idea of reincarnation, the idea of what is Gnosis, that ability to know God and to get out of your head. Um, and uh, yeah, a few other things. Uh, they had a, uh, a focus on the divine feminine that was lost in Judaism and Christianity in the form of Sophia, Mary Magdalene the holy spirit they saw as feminine and there's other again there's other uh you might say uh ideas features and elements to gnostic thought so why do you think that the i guess the church or christianity in general kind of omitted the feminine christianity is very male dominated is there a reason that you think they kind of pushed Mary Magdalene aside and tried to kind of disparage her a little bit? Yeah, I would say, I mean, first I would say that there is good evidence that the Gnostics were part of this sort of underground movement that was trying to keep the goddess alive from the days of, uh, days of Israel when God had a wife, as they say, and his wife was Asherah, Solomon had uh, Asherah in his temple, and so forth. And slowly Judaism began to suppress this goddess worship, this more nature, holistic, lunar, serpentine force for the cult of Yahweh, which became prominent. And the Gnostics were the ones who sort of kept it underground through... Uh, again through hellenistic judaism through christianity and uh they um uh, 
This was then later, I mean, it rose, but then it got suppressed by Christianity again, even though there is plenty of evidence that when Christianity started, it was more, uh, it had more of a wisdom tradition. I think um, Methodist minister Hal Tossick, who's very conservative, he's done a lot of work on the wisdom tradition in both Judaism and Christianity. But I would say it really comes down to this We'll learn more after a quick break. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general. So why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. If women represent nature, women represent the lunar powers, they represent chaos. Yes, I know there's Jordan Peterson in the background. (laughs) uh, They represent chaos, even though it's strange because in most cultures, the moon deity is always a male. But for some, so uh, you can't even go with lunar, but let's say chaos the holistic, the herbal, all that. And at some point, I think whenever there's a, whenever civilization come about, it was decided that the lunar female powers needed to be repressed. It was decided that, look, if we want roads and agriculture and we want math and astronomy and we want the trains to run on time and all that, we need to really pivot to a more uh, left brain thinking, the male masculine kind of orderly thinking. And slowly the other side got suppressed. And uh, this caused not only imbalance, but it was also a good way to control the population. Because if you have a population that only has half of its soul and its consciousness, then they're either to control because the divine feminine is always dangerous. It's always powerful. It's always unpredictable. It's always fluid. That's just the way it is. Yes, you can create something sterile like the Virgin Mary, or you can throw up some like the Hindus do where they put up some goddesses, but it's still a very misogynistic society, unfortunately. So it was decided if we're going to have civilization, 
and we're going to have a giant religion that's orderly and controlled and the female part has to be eliminated. And it's unfortunate because I personally think that the best possible society is an equal or balanced society of the male and the divine feminine parts. And I think that's what we're finding out today. And hopefully civilization will slowly move to this more balanced idea where there is, uh, again, God in Ashira and so forth. And this will come down to the consciousness of human beings as we move forward. And I would also say, too, I mean, unfortunately, civilization, the other thing about civilization, for to have a, a successful, uh, logical civilization, you always need slavery. It's terrible. Somehow it was decided in a long time ago, mm -hmm. and that's something that needs to be fixed. I think we can have an order civilization without slavery. I think we have plenty of slavery today, but that's always been the way it has been in uh, Western culture. If we're kind of eliminating or suppressing the feminine side of things. It's almost like having the yin and the yang, only you're missing one of the sides. Exactly. Doesn't really work. No, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. No, I think we're falling faster <laughs> than we have. Yeah, and we've had thousands of years of genocide, slavery, and justice. Yeah, the, the divine female appears here. The male divine does some wonderful things, invents things, creates some very cool art, and we got some awesome stuff, math, astrology, astronomy, all that good stuff, but it's still out of balance and it's still a huge body count. Yeah, that's, yeah, well said. Uh, can you tell us, okay, so this is something that popped up and I just kind of want to get this out of the way because I don't understand it from my you know, limited research. In one article that I read, and I can't remember who said it, you probably know, but it said that Gnosticism is the greatest case of metaphysical anti-Semitism. <laughs> and that just made no sense to me. And, and I don't understand where they're coming from. And I was hoping maybe you could at least shed some light on what they're trying to present as anti-semitism yeah i've heard that argument before it's so tired but they're going to continue with this I, I mean all religions have a shadow side gnosticism has its shadow side there's no doubt about it. everything can be weaponized jesus can be weaponized buddha can be weaponized we've we see 100 capitalism socialism can be weaponized but everything casts a and shadow. it is and it is <laughs> i mean yeah the powers that be in this world will find a way to use something against its population, no matter how neutral or good it is. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the anti-Semitism is pure nonsense. And it usually starts because uh, the Gnostics wrote these uh, caricatures about the Old Testament God, about some of the Old Testament figures or um, mm -hmm. the Hebrew Bible, if you would. And they would uh, basically deconstruct and turn these uh, stories upside down, like uh, Adam and Eve were the good guys, and so was the serpent. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were the good guys. They were the enlightened people. And, and Cain was good because he wasn't killing animals, at least, and God wasn't fair by what he did. And over and over again, and it seems like they're being... Uh, pretty nasty towards the Hebrew Bible, but they're right. But here's the thing. Remember I mentioned that they were the carriers mm -hmm. of these ancient traditions of Asherah 
And what we find too, especially with certain groups like the Sethians and so forth, is that they are really embedded in the Hebrew traditions. I mean, their knowledge of, and this is what scholars have said, even Jewish scholars have said, told me that, is very intimate and strong with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible or the, you know, all those texts. They understand the theology. They, in a lot of their texts, they're using very intricate Hebrew puns, Aramaic puns. They're using, I mean, in the days of Jesus, nobody really spoke Hebrew. In fact, Philo of Alexandria, considered the greatest ancient um, Jewish philosopher, he didn't know Hebrew. He only spoke Greek. Hmm. And But these Gnostics have an intricate understanding of the theology of the Hebrew and Jewish movement and Mid Middle Eastern movement. So therefore, they were really embedded in this stuff. And in ancient times, when you know you didn't have the internet and how hard it would be to educate yourself right. you had to be really part of the religion to really understand it at the intimate levels that the gnostics understood it they just decided that they were writing exegesis they were saying that uh, moses got it wrong that he was missing that they were saying correctly that there were scriptures that had not been included in the Hebrew Bible. There were traditions that had been suppressed out of Ashira, the Shekinah, Sophia that had been pressed. And they were saying that basically we had been conned with these texts and these stories and that there was a truer version. In fact, as some scholars have said, the Adam and Eve story that the Gnostics would present in their text is closer to the Sumerian text. So there was probably, they, the Gnostics even knew of the older traditions, the perhaps truer tradition. So the idea is ridiculous because you're basically saying that these, that the original Gnostics who were Jewish are anti-Semite. Does that make sense? Yeah. I guess you said, they, and you know, which is not, they were not. And, uh, I mean, Paul himself, he, Paul was doing the same thing. He, I think in Galatians, he said, Moses had a veil over his eyes and it wasn't God who gave him the 10 commandments or the Torah. It was angels. So even Paul is saying, no, there's more to this story than what the temple priests are giving us and the Kings of Israel and all that. There's, there's another tradition out there and it's the right tradition and it's the true, it's the more holistic tradition mm -hmm. and sorry, you know, they were the, they were probably Hellenistic Jews. Yeah, it seemed from my research like every, like Gnosticism kind of incorporates elements from every religion. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it looks like every religion kind of considers it heretical in some way. Just, just for kind of deconstructing what they've already tried to establish and saying, no, that's, you know, like you were saying, this isn't really the whole story or things have been turned in a way that, that no longer represents the reality of it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the Gnostics probably thrived in Alexandria 2,000 years ago. They thrived in Mesopotamia, and these were places that were huge melting pots. There were stews. So, therefore, people had a more, uh, a lot of, you know, when it came to religion, a much more, quote, multicultural view. They would adopt this god and that ritual. I mean, we have evidence, archaeological evidence of these Jews in uh, uh, 
uh, Elephantine in Egypt who worshipped Isis on the side. Uh, so in Judaism was actually a very fluid religion and Christianity was a very fluid religion when it started. Well, Christianity still is fluid. There's what, 30,000 <laughs> sects out there today. So, uh, so yeah, so the Gnostics were definitely incorporated. Yeah, I mean, they do tend to be called a parasitical religion because uh, the most important thing as Gnosticism developed was the idea of gnosis that uh, ecstatic state of being so and because it was kind of an anarchist movement it was no problem to borrow or use other religion religions and their techniques to get to that ecstatic uh, state of being so they would like mute and change and they would break off into different lodges and therefore that's why you see uh, there are very strong Gnostic sects in Zoroastrianism. There are in, in Islam with the assassins and the Sufis, Kabbalah, all over the place. These sort of Gnostic, Gnostic thrusts come up here and there because that's how the religion works. It's like, I'm going to throw everything in the kitchen sink so I can get that Gnosis and break out of this simulation and find out who the hell I am at the bottom of all this programming and conditioning and culture and instinct and desires and uh, so yeah so that's why it, it people it seems like a parasitical religion well and i think they use anti-semitism as what ryan refers to as kind of a thought canceling uh, mm. device where if, yeah, if someone just says oh well gnostics are anti-semitic then that will keep a certain percentage of population from even looking into it at all Oh, yeah. Yeah, typical cancel culture bullshit. (laughs) And I mean, and I'm not saying it's not even the woke people. This argument, I remember reading about it like 10 years ago, and this came from uh, evangelical ministers. They're the ones who were throwing that the Gnostics were anti-Semite to make sure nobody got, like you said, nobody got close to their text and became corrupted by it. All right. Well, I'm just going to run through kind of a, a list of Uh, things that I would like your point of view or explanation on. Tell us about flesh versus spirit. I know you said meat sex earlier, which is a fun term. Tell us about the flesh versus the spirit, like what we're, we're trying to evolve from the flesh to get to the spirit. Is, is that kind of where we're headed? Well, I think the Gnostics have been called world haters and body haters, but I don't even <laughs> think those terms make any sense. Like, right. there's no there's no examples of Gnostics, like, on their knees punching the world. Like, I hate you. You brought me here. In fact, their texts can be very dark, <clears throat> but there is a joy. There is a huge happiness because they're awake. But they saw reality for what it was. I mean, Plato said the body was a tomb. Uh, uh, Plotinus, mm-hmm. the most one of the most non-dualistic philosophers out there, he said a lot of bad things about the flesh. I mean, because it's true. I mean, our bodies are going to fail us. I'm in my 50s, and more and more my conversations with my friends about how sore and how things are breaking down it's a world of temporality. It's a world of death. It's a world world of suffering. It doesn't, the Gnostics would say, makes no sense. What kind of God would create this? So, but at the same time, they really knew that the, the idea of transformation 
was uh, to be the best possible human being. People accuse the Gnostics of being like Heaven's Gate, even though Heaven's Gate was Gnostic, but it just got the last part wrong. <laughs> Yeah. You're not you're not meant to escape the world. You're meant to sa help save the world. You're you're getting these powers from the alien god, and to the Gnostic, you weren't supposed to be God. You're supposed to be the best possible human possible because humans we have a special place in this cosmos. As sure. Gary Lachman said, we are the caretakers of the cosmos. We need to take care of, do our best with animals and trees and uh, and everything else. So that was uh, that's one thing that's been mischaracterized about the Gnostics. But the, again, they were completely realistic about how it is. You get all these new age and mainstream religion. Oh, everything's wonderful and it's God's plan. Is like, oh God, what are you talking about? It's so we got fucking viruses and diseases and all these terrible things. Well, I think that's why why God gave us free will. You're given free will, but you're meant to still serve a higher purpose and do good things for people and try and make the world a better place. And I think if anybody argues against that, that's probably not someone I even want to have a conversation with. So, <laughs> Well, you might not want to have a conversation with me because free will, and I, here's how I'm tweaking it. And okay. I'm, I'm bringing in Jung, Carl Jung, because Jung did a he, great job in translating and couching the ancient Gnostic ideas in a more modern way, which we're getting under Philip K. Dick also did a great job. The Wachowskis did have done a great job. But Jung always said, we didn't come to this world to be good. We came to be ourselves. In other words, each one of us has a destiny, a very wonderful purpose that we have to follow. And we've forgotten We've fallen into this world and we've forgotten what that purpose is. And yes, this purpose is something to help the world, to make the world more conscious, to make the world, to make humanity continue in the right direction and so forth. I mean, I always like also what Carl Jung said is uh, free will is doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing right now because our egos have their own mission you know i want to be i want this girl i want to make this salary i want to have a house that looks this way and absolutely our egos have a destiny but that destiny is not the destiny of our higher self or the alien god it is a different destiny so we have free will but we really don't or we're following the counterfeit free will the gnostics talked about the counterfeit spirit which is the fake part of us that's leading us down a bad road where our higher self has another thing and pain comes when we don't listen to our higher selves animals understand their instincts that's why they're not depressed and shooting up drugs and all this other stuff because they follow their nature when we mm -hmm. humans follow our nature our special nature because again we are a bit different we think abstractly we have self-introspection we just we're, we're different when we listen to our purpose it's an amazing thing but we're just so damn fragmented so that's what i would say is um, the whole idea of gnosticism and where we fit into the world and world hating and all that yeah i hope it makes sense <laughs> sometimes it does, i go on yeah. a tangent yeah. so all right so christ as an angel angel savior or archangel it seems like there's there's different views you know throughout different 
sects or forms of Gnosticism. Where where do you stand? Where does Christ stand in your beliefs? Yeah, I mean, there was certainly within the Gnostics and within all Christians, there were some there were debates about the nature of Christ. Was he human? Did he have a human soul? Did he suffer? Is he equal to the Father? And these debates were hundreds of Christian sects would debate and argue it through hundreds of years in councils and all that. And the Gnostics were no different. There were some Gnostics who said, no, Jesus was a human who became enlightened. Uh, he mm-hmm. suddenly woke up and he was able to recall all his lives and he was able to master all his animalist, his meat sack desires. <laughs> that was what one, that's the car. That's what one group, the Carpocratians said. He recalled it. He had total recall, as the movie the Philip K. Dick said. And he had, he was able to finally, in a very stoic way, put all his motions under him and allow his higher mind. So, to some Gnostics, yes, he was a very enlightened, wise teacher. To others, no, he was sort of a cosmic being, a force. Um, he was more akin to uh, the logos, the the reason of God, the uh, creative intelligence of the divine mind, and the male part. While Sophia, she was the the other, the female force of the mind of God. And these two figures in a lot of Gnostic texts had to work together and be reunited like two lovers in order to heal the universe. So I would see that's that's exactly what it was, and to each person, um, we could. The Gnostics always describe the mind, the undivided consciousness, the one, as sort of a mind. It's almost like they're describing a mind. Okay. So sometimes you wonder, were they describing our mind too, as above, so below? And if we can get our mind in order, then we can become that's when we can recognize the one i mean even like the gospel of philip says um what does it say and you saw christ and you will become christ the resurrection must happen now while you are in the flesh Hmm. so at the end of the day yes jesus was a higher self a force of nature but we are called to become like him i mean even uh, the gospel of thomas one of the most popular Gnostic text always says, if if you decipher my sayings, you will become like me and I will become like you. I see. Is Gnosticism a religion? Uh, good question. I guess it can be. It can be, uh, again, I always like to call it an aesthetic. Okay. It can be a philosophy. I have uh, friends and people I talk to who are atheists, but they really like the Gnostic philosophy, that idea that we're trapped, that we need to wake up, that we need to become better versions of ourselves. that each of us has wisdom and reason in our minds that needs to be balanced. Uh, yeah, from, a, from Carl Jung, you could go pretty much secular, and you could say it's a form of... Uh, it's a mental state, a psychological. I mean, Carl Jung himself said the Gnostics were history's first depth psychologists because they truly understood the secrets of the psyche. They really went deep to understand what was going under the hood of each one of us. So you can see, I mean, we were talking about the shadow side of Gnosticism. You could say it's political. I think there are scholars hmm. like, um, God, I forgot his name, Paul. I'm trying to think of uh, his name. University of Toronto makes a very good argument that uh, communism and Nazism are very Gnostic in itself. But of course, without the metaphysical part, then things can go wrong because 
you're trying to break the system and everybody you don't like is an archon, things can go really mm -hmm. wrong. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So you can, you can definitely cut it into a religion, a philosophy, an aesthetic, whatever you want to do. Do you meditate? Yes, I do. I try to meditate as often as possible, and I know I don't meditate enough. <laughs> I don't think most of us do. What kind of things, like, say if you're going to set aside some time to meditate, do you pick a, a specific thing that you want to focus on, or do you just kind of let yourself go and try and look inward and just see what kind of pops up, I guess? Yeah, it changes. I have... I do have a prescription of things I do and I'm always tweaking and changing. I'm getting to the point in my life where I can just listen to my soul and it might tell me that we need to go here and we need to go there. I mean, to listen to your unconscious or your soul or your divine spark, there are many ways to do it. And as Jung said, there is only one salvation and that is your salvation. Alan Watts said that if anybody anybody who offers you enlightenment is like somebody stealing uh, the watch from your pocket and offering to sell it to you. And I think, so it is your way and each one of us has special needs, what's going to work for us, what we need to do to listen, to quieten ourselves. I mean, when I talk to friends, I have a friend, he loves TM meditation. It works for him, but it doesn't work for me. Sure. So I try different uh, sort of, uh, I try Tonglin meditation, Neville Goddard, water meditation. And I'm always experimenting and mixing together and changing things. And I sort of, the more I listen, the more my soul will guide me. Like, no, you need to go this way. No, you need to go outside in nature and sit there. And then when you're walking, you need to put on some, you know, good music, put Depeche Mode on or whatever excites you <laughs> and then walk around and then you need to do walking meditation and describe everything. So that's the beauty of today is there are thousands of choices out there on how you want to meditate and you should try them all and you should continue trying them and tweaking them because as I say, once you wake up, the Archons will shift reality on you. They'll change your very ego. Hmm. So what works today might not work tomorrow. Don't think that whatever spiritual ritual you are or anything is going to work forever because it's probably not. To, definitely not till the day you die. Sure. Always be moving in front of the Archons. Always be moving in front of your ego, in front of culture. And... And it doesn't always have to be meditation. I mean, there are things like dream therapy, active imagination, entheogens, tarot, divination tools are great to know yourself. There is a whole sea out there of things that you can do that will quieten you and will also decipher what your soul is trying to say to you in a way that will help you. And it might be confusing because... This is the language of the symbols, the language of archetypes, and it doesn't make sense to our ego, and our ego wants to reject it, and so forth. But um, And we've been conditioned to reject all that. Yeah, the supernatural, so. too. Yeah. Even though the supernatural is not even supernatural, it's just nature. Right, exactly. And animals are telepaths. They can predict a storm or a tsunami or an earthquake uh, hours before it happens. I mean, are animals supernatural? No. They're just in tune with themselves. <laughs> well, I can tell you from personal experience that the second I have a thought of, eh, I think I'm going to get my dog a treat, 
he jumps off the bed and <laughs> runs into the kitchen and they i'm like they're telepathic yeah rupert sheldrake did experiments on that they are they know and i had a dog too my it knew when i was going to show up from work to the minute it wasn't like every day at five but it knew when i was walking around the block i lived in chicago it's like burr, 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 burr. <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing and you know science will tell us oh well you're giving off an endorphin that they read and they know that that's the same you know endorphin or scent or whatever that you have given off every time you give them a treat or whatever but it it doesn't really explain you know like you said they do know they they know when you're coming home before you pull into your street and you know my wife will tell me oh well you know five minutes ago your dog ran to the door and just <laughs> sat at the door uh -huh. and you know just knew i was on my way home so yeah my dog we lived in the third floor of a condo it was uh it was tight uh, you couldn't hear anything or anything I, I didn't pull up in a car i would just be walking down the street and it knew i mean there's no way it could smell or hear me well they know i'm coming home but they still bark <laughs> like it's an intruder so i don't i don't know how to fix that but uh getting back on topic a little bit so monad is the is the alien god the true creator of the universe is that what i'm getting not the universe you might say the gnostics would not they weren't happy whoever created this universe oh. and maybe it was us but whoever did it didn't <laughs> do a very good job this is the world of again viruses the platypus uh this is a world of uh the Big Bang Theory is a hit show. Uh, just, um, it's a bizarre world, a world of suffering, a world of death, temporality, a world where to survive, most hum most living beings have to consume and hurt another living being. But anyway, to them, the monad was basically undivided consciousness, Brahma, if you would, in Hinduism. And okay. it was, uh, yeah, it was the supreme state of being, if you would, and it would flow out into its characteristics and they had different stories that it's you know at some point as it was un understanding itself or flowing out as it became self-aware and was trying to whenever it had a characteristic that char characteristic became true there was a, a glitch or something went wrong or part of it extended too far into the chaos and bad things then happened uh, bad forces eventually took over that's interesting. So I'm trying to understand this as we're going. And it believe me, it takes a lot of editing for me to even sound coherent. <laughs> so you'll have to forgive me. Then the Demiurge, would that be the Old Testament God, the God of, you know, vengeance and so right, on? Right, right. That's the God that takes care of matter. In uh, Plato's Timaeus, he also had a similar story where you had the one, but there's all this floating stuff in creation and the Demiurge orders, orders it all up in the chaos and that's our material world and this is the place where souls go. To the Gnostics, the Demiurge was not, to Plato, the Demiurge was a good god and he was a wise god, but to the Gnostics, he wasn't. They put him again more akin to 
Uh, again, the god of the Old Testament, Cronus, uh, Saturn, and some of those other gods, because they said, no, this universe, this guy's really botching things up. We need new management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was also referred to as Satan at some point, right? I, I think I read somewhere that he was, I guess a synonym would be Yahweh, Satan, and I know those are two very different things to most people, but it seems like in the research that I did that those were almost interchangeable. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the ancient Gnostics, I don't think they really talked about Satan. They do mention him, but he's more of a kind of more of the oppressor that you have in Hebrew tradition. He doesn't, in or sometimes he is working with the Archons. He has his purpose, his place in creation, but he's nowhere near the uh, the shenan- the evil shenanigans of the demiurge and his archons. However, in medieval times, you had groups like the Cathars and the Bogomils. They lost the idea of the demiurge, and they simply said Satan was the ruler of this world. He was sort of he took over as the head programmer of the simulation, and he was the one that we had to overcome. And then the Archons, would they be, I I guess, what some may consider demons? Yeah, I wouldn't say, I mean, I guess you could call them demons, you could call them angels, but their job was to, they were the sort of uh, mechanistic rulers of the universe. They were associated with the planets, they were associated with some of the stars, and they were the ones who just made sure that the simulation was running as best as possible. And the ones that okay. uh, would create a world where we would remain ignorant and asleep. That's the, in one text, the, uh, the Gospel of Philip says the greatest of sins, the mother of all sins is ignorance. So they do whatever they can. And these things can be good. They can be bad to make sure that we do not wake up. So they're a mixture of these, uh, you might say, cosmic bureaucrats with sort of union thugs because they, do, they, they can get pretty nasty if it works. They are known to be very rapey, very violent, and uh, yeah, very nasty. But at the end of the day, they make sure that the construct is working and they can use good things to keep us asleep too. That's very interesting. They can use good things to keep us asleep, too. Yeah, they try in the text there. They're trying to keep Adam and Eve asleep and in the garden. So they're creating all this beautiful stuff, but they see through them. So, yeah, whatever they can to keep us asleep, to make sure that we worship them and think they are the true gods and that we just, again, remain in a perpetual state of ignorance to our divine reality or heritage. Well said, well said. And so I, I have a, just a few things here. I, I think you already kind of covered Pleroma, but that is the original essence that we're all trying to get to. Yeah, it's more of a, yeah, it's a state of being like Nirvana. It's again, they described it as a, a giant mind. That was the perfect mind, uh, but because it was perfect, it was in a state of pure bliss and harmony. So, yeah, they would call it the Pleroma. I don't know if, uh, and again, 
how they got there to some Gnostics it was an inward journey to others it was sort of an astral flight through the stars through the constellation Draco or Virgo where they would make contact to some Gnostics it, it changed some thought it was a a giant sleeping serpent that we had to sort of stir and become part of it so they had different mythologies and metaphors and all that but it all seems to be sort of a complete state of uh, enlightenment or wholeness as uh, Carl Jung would say and can we experience that while we're still in our meat sacks oh for sure that's where we need to experience that yeah we got to be Christ before we got to be Christ we got to resurrect before we die so that's the idea of these ecstatic rituals is to experience these higher realms or this higher form of consciousness yeah it sounds almost like uh what was it ascending in the old stargate sg1 series right exactly where they would become essentially do exactly what you're saying kind of i mean it's a super pop culture way of looking at it but shed their physical form and the material attachments that come with it and become pure consciousness exactly yes very true and I've, i'm I'm thinking about, while you guys are talking, I'm thinking about uh, a book that I read when I was way too young to be reading something like this, but I was reading this book my dad had. Uh, It was a bunch of works by Blaise Pascal, and a section of it is called Misery of Man Without God. Mm. And he's talking about just sort of the things people go through when they try to imagine their place in the universe and the fact that, you know, any individual person is basically nothing. You know, like you said, the spark that's within us is just a shard of something larger. And I think that a lot of people are very comfortable being distracted by our meat sack desires. Right. <laughs> and uh, the, the things that we do on a daily basis. You know, I went through a period where I wasn't working. I was laid off during the pandemic, and then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. You know, I didn't want to go back into the same kind of job I had before. And I had a lot of time, and my mind just wandered towards some of these issues that I wouldn't normally think of. You know, like, what is the nature of what we're doing here? What happens when we die? You know, what is reincarnation? Is that real? Is that recycling of consciousness or some kind of spark or essence is it really somebody coming back and it put me in a very uncomfortable a profoundly uncomfortable mental state and i was very happy to you know find some kind of routine or work to go back to that kind of put me back into i guess probably put me back to sleep (laughs) in the terms of what we're talking about here um so i think there's kind of a natural inbuilt barrier to our our physical forms that prevents us from really waking up all the way because it it, it's not a pleasant thing to try to do i wonder if you agree with that no 100 percent. yeah i mean it's in a way it's a destruction of everything you knew it's the destruction of you and the replacement of something completely new transformation so it's not easy it's not easy to change. It's not easy to see reality. It's not easy to wrestle with these higher questions that can seem like koans or double binds. But uh, in the end, as long as you're, you you experience things better in a more real way, 
I think it's uh, that's the way to go. Don't get yourself too caught up in these things and mm-hmm. the dark night of the soul or others because you'll go you'll just go crazy. But focus on the experience of being alive, of being awake, and all these questions then begin to make more sense. Um, yeah, and, and living in the moment. The only thing that exists is right now. Like you were talking about, just getting back to nature. We spend so much time. You know, we're at work and then we have to come home, make sure we get to sleep on time. So we'll be, you know, available at work tomorrow. And then, you know, we have to go to work to pay for our house. And and we're just caught up in this cycle that is keeping us asleep. Well said. But I also get I also get now the uh, I never thought about free will in the terms you were talking about, Miguel. The, the idea that if you are if you are expressing your free will, you're probably doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And I think on a really low level, a low meat sack level, <laughs> that's like what I used to do as a project manager. I knew, you know, I didn't have to provide really specific instructions to people on what they were supposed to do. You know, I didn't need to limit their free will in that way. But I know if I drop John into this project as as the person who handles this thing and this other person, and I know exactly how they're going to interact because I've known them for years and they have free will. (laughs) I'm not saying that I'm playing God, but it's one of those things you don't have to dictate exactly what they do to know exactly what they're going to do. Right. If If you put them in the right situation. So if we're, you know, if our simulation is running smoothly, I guess we're being put into situations where we are doing what we're supposed to be doing or if we're being guided by you know our higher selves we're doing what we're supposed to be doing well said i agree all right can you tell us a little bit so your podcast is called is it aeon bite is that how you say it yeah aeon bite gnostic radio and uh, yeah an aeon is sort of the well, it's many definitions in ancient times, but to the Gnostics, there were the characteristics of God, of the mind of God, like Jesus is the logo, Sophia is the wisdom, and so forth. And then bite, B-Y-T-E, more to just to give it a, well, kind of a tongue-in-cheek definition, modern context kind of thing. Fair enough. Tell us more about Sophia. Sophia, is she the kind of the main feminine character or player in Gnosticism? There's there's a few of them, but she's probably the most popular one. Uh, but yeah, she's sort of a Luciferian, disobedient figure. In some traditions, she disobeys the Pleroma because she's wisdom. She has to know everything and has to experience everything and sort of falls into the world. And she's actually the mother of the Demiurge. Mm. Uh, and because she gives birth to this monster god, this tyrant god, she is the one who has to help fix the world, has to rescue all the divine sparks that fall. In some stories, the Demiurge steals her power and then uses it to fuel the world and hides it in us meat sacks. So she's she's one of the more interesting ones, and it makes sense because, uh, again, going back to the silly anti-Semite polemic, 
in Jewish tradition or Hebrew tradition, there's always the idea of wisdom being lost. You see that in uh, the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon. The book of Enoch says wisdom came to men and was rejected. You see that in a lot of the Kabbalistic lore where the Shekinah of God is lost and we must try and rescue her. So there's this tradition where wisdom is lost and uh, wise human beings have to find her or the gods have to find her. So the Gnostics really ran with this and wisdom is here in the world lost. She's trying to fix the problems that she's created. She's trying to get humanity to recognize her for what she is. So she becomes a big player in some of the Gnostic myths, but she is usually helped by the powers of the Pleroma that emanate like Jesus or another figure to help her in her war against her son, the Demiurge. But they had other figures too. Uh, Barbalo is sort of the supreme mother. Uh, they had a few other ones that they certainly enjoyed playing with. All right, let's go over some concepts. And I'm guaranteed to mispronounce some of these. And there might be more that I didn't get to, but uh, Sarkic or Sarkic? I think Sarka is Greek for flesh. Which, so it, we could be talking about meat sex again. All right. Yeah, I get that. That probably sounds right. And then Hylic. Yeah, Hylic is also uh, Greek for flesh. So that's, uh, oh, okay. again, the meat sex. The Gnostics often said that there were some humans who were Hylics because all they could do was identified with material stuff. Mm. And some humans were called psychics because they were they were soul they understood material stuff but they understood higher stuff and then there were some called the um nomadics who were people who just were interested in affairs of the of the flesh and this comes from uh usually comes from paul because paul always talks about the animalistic and the animal man and the thinking man i mean mm -hmm. the the gnostics were very inspired and influenced by paul because when you start reading his his letters, you realize that they're, they can be very Gnostic. Yeah, I wanted to get to that too. Um, but pneumatic from what I, is that our goal, being pneumatic? I mean, it kind of seemed like in, in the reading that I did, is that our way back to the Pleroma? We'll learn more after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Is that our way back to the Pleroma? Yeah. Yeah, you want to be spiritual, right? I do. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, that would be the goal. You want to be like Jesus. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, what about Kenoma? Kenoma is the world we live in today. Pleroma means the fullness Kenoma means the emptiness. As the Buddha said, the universe is empty. The Gnostics agreed. It is really nothing. It's an illusion. Very interesting. And then I have uh, charisma. And I think we all know what charisma means. But in the context of Gnosticism, where does charisma fit in? I don't know if it fits in. I haven't heard it used in Gnosticism. Wow. But then again, I might have missed something. Who knows? I doubt that. <laughs> And then you spoke about the logos. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, as I mentioned, it's the reason of God. It's a very powerful um, 
force that, I mean, came from the days of Heraclitus and the pre-Socratic and, and onward philosophers. This was how the reason of God manifests in the world. It's the creative power of the world, the sustaining power of the world. And many deities have been associated with the logos uh, from, I mean, Dionysus to Jesus to so forth. I mean, the Gospel of John, which is actually was first embraced by the Gnostics. It's not in the beginning was the word. The real translation in the beginning was the logos. And it is the logos who creates the world in the darkness. Nice. Uh, where do you stand on Jesus as a Gnostic savior? Oh, I think I already mentioned that, of course. Okay. It talks about how Gnosticism and Christianity and Judaism were all kind of intertwined. Well, they were, all, they were always in dialogue, as uh, David Brackey. They were always in a state of hybridity. Mm -hmm. They were learning from each other, talking to each other, sometimes unconsciously adopting things with each other. As I mentioned earlier, yeah, Judaism and Christianity were very fluid religions. They were not mm -hmm. monolithic. That wouldn't come till centuries afterwards. Uh, and even uh, some of the church fathers, when they criticized the Gnostics, they didn't criticize them because of their idea of Gnosis. They criticized them because they said they had the wrong Gnosis. Church fathers like Irenaeus or Clement were like, no, we have the right Gnosis. We have the right direct experience with God. So... Gnosis and faith were fine in early Christianity, even working together. Yeah, it seems like early Christianity, or what I so refer to as proto-Christianity, was difficult to distinguish from Gnosticism. And that it wasn't until kind of the more maybe ritual side of, of Christianity came about that they really started to diverge more. Yeah, again, it's hard to... Um... It's hard to put the pieces together until we have a time machine. Yeah, hard to go back 1,600 and, years yeah, and the, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, the mainstream, uh, obviously the mainstream with the apostles and getting the Holy Spirit and all that is not true. And most of the history of the church is, is just wonderful mythology. But uh, it seemed, but again, they were in a conversation. Uh, April DeConnick, who wrote the wonderful book, The Gnostic New Age, she disagrees because she says the Gnostics came out of the gate and said that, you know, the God of the, the God of this world is a demon. And so are all the angels and everything that flows out of them that manifests our religious institutions, our governmental institutions, everything else is bad and that was really radical because not something you didn't and again they would uh, say the same things about uh Cronus or osiris or some of the other gods so she says and i would agree that they didn't become heretical they were heretical out of the gate because they were really saying things that you just didn't say in ancient times and they were saying things you don't say in most of the world today mm -hmm. If you go to the East or the Middle East or mm -hmm. the South, you still shouldn't be saying that stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're basically saying everything's a lie and we're in hell. Right. Yeah, it seemed like from what I was reading that the it's not so much that Gnosticism became heretical, it's that Catholicism and Christianity moved away from it and kind of started going its own direction. That Gnosticism was is maybe closer to what 
Catholicism originally was before sort of the decline of the Roman Empire and this almost crystallization of, yeah, I guess, a loss of fluidity in Christianity. Yeah, I mean, I know at some point there was debate. Do, should Christians adopt the uh, Hebrew Bible? Uh, and the Gnostics were like, no, we were rewriting it. And uh, the Christians and Catholics were like, no, 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 this is our tradition. This is we... We are part of the continuation of this ancient tradition with Moses and the patriarchs and the Messiah and all this other stuff. So there was always this, there was this tension of which way it would go. And there were decisions. There were Christians who used to say that Hermes Trismegistus was fine. Augustine didn't like him, but the other church fathers were like, no, he was an ancient pagan philosopher who rubbed shoulders with Moses and Plato. So he should be part of the Christian tradition. So there were always this debate, but again, uh, mm -hmm. the idea that uh, how the world was, there was a church father, Irenaeus, who said, uh, they said that the Gnostics were worse than Satan, because at least Satan admits that creation is a pretty good place. The Gnostics wouldn't even go that far. It, it kind of seems like the Catholic Church was almost a, like a direct response to Gnostic Christianity. Like they almost seems like they formed in order to kind of excommunicate the Christian Gnostics. Well, yeah, and other heretics. No, other heretics. I mean, we have to remember that the first Bible did not come out of the Catholic Church or the Gnostics. It came out of Marcion. Marcion was a Christian who in the mid, early to mid second century, came out and he came to Rome. He was a, a rich guy, so he's kind of mm -hmm. a Mitt Romney or a Donald Trump. He just kind of paid his way to become a bishop. And he uh, he said, all right, we need, uh, we need a canon. We need books that we're going to circle our wagons around it. And he did. The problem was that Marcy, he was a Gnostic because he uh, didn't, he didn't have the idea of gnosis and he was more of a predestination kind of Calvinist guy that God would choose you. Um, and uh, he said, we're going to have a canon, but of course, but he also said that Christianity and Judaism should completely separate. He said, look, we want the Jews to go this way and we want Christians to go this way. So there is no old Testament and Jesus just appears out of nowhere in the middle East and he's just there trying to uh, save people through faith. And so Marcion was a big deal where the other bishops who were started, who would become the foundation of the Catholic Church were like, oh my God, this guy's terrible. We can't do that. We got to keep the Old Testament and we got to keep these things. And, and was, there was also the big debates. Do we have children? Should we have families? Uh, there was all these debates about what the church would look like. But yeah. Uh, a lot of the, what the church became was a reaction against Marcion, against the Gnostics. And you see that. You see that um, when uh, in the New Testament, in the Epistle of John, he's when he's talking about the Antichrist, there is no one Antichrist. He says, many Antichrists. He says, those who deny that people came in the flesh. 
that Jesus came in the flesh, sorry. He's, mm-hmm. He might be talking about the Gnostics. Or even in the epistle of Jude, where he says, uh, those who have gone the way of Cain. He might have been talking about the Cainites who saw Cain as the hero. So there is certainly a reaction in a lot of uh, the church and the Bible. But that's what you do, right? I mean, whenever there's a rule in like the Old Testament or the Bible, it's not because somebody made it up. It's because somebody was doing it, right? right. It's like, you shall not have sex with animals. Well, you write it because somebody was having sex with animals. Exactly. So. There's always a reaction to troublemakers out there. Right, absolutely. Tell us about the Apocryphon of John. I know that's probably a very deep subject and there's a lot going on there, but that was something that I found really interesting is, you know, well, actually, first off, I wanted to uh, talk about another thought-canceling word is heretic because most people at least religious people, Christian people for sure, hear heretic and they just automatically, they don't listen to any knowledge that person might be sharing. They just, like you said, cancel culture. It's uh, uh, Heretic is a canceling word and people don't even want to listen to what that person has to say. Uh, so when we say, I, I think that Gnosticism is considered the original heresy, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the word was certainly used. I don't think it, it had such a negative connotation. It used to mean uh, school of thought. I mean, they used to call, for example, the Pharisees were called the heretics as school of thought. Or uh, uh, Josephus talks about how surgeons are a medical heretics. They're from a school of thought. So this term was neutral, and also the term also means thinking outside the lines or uh, thinking outside the normal. But it really was Christianity who sort of weaponized it and said, you know, it's a negative thing. And anybody outside orthodoxy, which is Greek for straight thinking, was bad. So, again, things get twisted, context change, and... uh, here we are, and all of a sudden, one minute you're having a conversation with other Christians, the next one you're the bad guy. All right, and then the Apocryphon of John. What do we know about that? Well, that's a text found, there's actually a text found outside of the Nag Hammadi Library, but there's three copies, I believe, in the Nag Hammadi Library, and it's considered the most... Uh, expansive and loyal Gnostic text and it's a wild ride it's uh it starts out with Jesus with the Apostle John he's sad because Jesus was killed and uh this Pharisee called Arimanos which kind of sounds like Ariman from uh from the Persian lore mocks him and he goes running to a cave and then Jesus materializes. He takes all these forms and materializes to him. And he's like, John, what? A, you haven't learned anything? This was no big deal. I am not my flesh. I am more than that. But I'm going to explain to you how everything happened. And Jesus gives this long story about the beginning of the monad or the one or the alien God waking up to Sophia's disobedience to her giving birth to the Demiurge to him creating the world. And then 
uh, creating Adam and Eve as his slaves to hide the divine spark. And the whole history of humanity includes the Nephilim, the floods and all that. And then towards the end, there's a, there are some hymns and exercises for spiritual awakening. There are exercises, there are declarations of Jesus of what's going to happen at the end of the world, that souls will reincarnate until those who finally learn will leave to the pleroma and those who finally don't want to learn will just collapse into dead matter and it's an amazing text it's very psychedelic it's very lovecraftian it's yeah. very rated x because there's scenes with brutalizing murder and rape but there's scenes with beautiful prayer so it's a great text i would never go at it alone i would tell your listeners to get like Karen King's book on where she breaks down the secret book of John mm -hmm. or um, Stephen Davis or somebody else just you know go blow by blow so you can really understand but it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful text and again the fact that they found three copies in the Nag Hammadi library I mean in those days uh, one text was like you know a BMW was very expensive to have uh to write this stuff so it was probably very important not just to the gnostics but a scholar said it was probably very important to many christians around absolutely and then you had mentioned paul a few times can you tell us kind of his role in gnosticism well he seems to come from the tradition of uh that you find in the book of enoch or the book of daniel in the writings of Simon Magus that yes God created this world but at some point he entrusted angels to take care of the world and the angels have botched things up and it is a matter of who is going to uh, get rid of these angels or tell these angels to get their shit together or whatever and uh, in Paul, it's just this entity called Jesus that will come down and he's crucified and he's able to, because of his death, he's able to sort of shatter the cosmic laws and defeat. And Paul uses the term archons. I know in the Bible it's translated as rulers, but in Greek it's archons. He talks about the God of this world that will he will lose his power. And he's obviously talking about the Demiurge. Uh, he talks about the wisdom of God that will awaken us. He's saying Sophia and so forth. So uh, he uses the word Gnosis. He just uses a lot of terms that were, again, from the sort of vibe that you had in Judaism about angels ruling the world. And the Gnostics just thought he was awesome. And they really build upon his ideas. Well, you sound like you are a happy person. You sound very mellow and just grounded. What has Gnosticism done for you spiritually? Well, it's just taught me that this isn't real. And what is real is amazing. And what is real can be experienced. And that should be the first thing we should do is how do we come full humans and how do we have an experience of the divine? And that experience is pure ecstasy whenever you can have it. I mean, I think our natural state of being where we came from was in one of eternal ecstasy. And that got robbed from us. So, I don't I mean, obviously, I 
like anybody else, I get caught up in the meat sack world. I've, you know, I get tired, I get sick, I get frustrated. I have to work and worry about bills. But uh, if I keep myself in the charge of Sophia and Jesus, then I, I don't miss sight of the big picture of things. Where would you suggest our listeners start if they want to learn more? And obviously, your voice is very soothing. So your podcast, you can just put on and kick back and relax <laughs> to. So besides Aeon Bite, where would you suggest that they start? You said you wrote some books, right? Yeah, I would say because, again, I'm all about how everybody has a different spiritual constitution and how you're ready and everything. But if you go to my website, The God Above God, mm -hmm. if you go on one of the menu tabs, there's a tab called What is Gnosticism? And you pull it down and there's like four articles. There's videos and everything. And it's very introductory. Okay. But the, at the bottom, I have recommended books. And I think that's a good one because it's how you want to approach Gnosticism. I have a section that's introduction. I have a section that's historical and includes my book, Voices of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. I have a section that's philosophical. I have one that's more inspirational, one that's fictional, like if you want to read Philip K. Dick or Grant Morrison. So your listeners can decide, well, what am I ready? Which way do I want to approach it? And then they can go from there. Well, that makes sense. Um, Ryan, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask? I don't know that I have anything that I need to ask, but I am kind of having a little bit of a crisis on my end because I'm realizing how much I've been exposed to some of these ideas, how many names are being thrown out that are very familiar and ideas that are familiar. And it's giving me a lot to think about. I mean, and I always have to bring it back to like pop culture references because that's kind of a part of who I am, but I'm even thinking about, uh, I don't know if you guys remember the old Wolfenstein game. Oh yeah. My God, that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were newer ones that I wound up picking up a while ago that are on like PS4, PS5, whatever. And one of the missions and for anybody listening, Wolfenstein is basically an alternate universe version of world war two. You know, things go different. The Nazis or the Axis have all this incredible technology, but there are missions where you encounter this religious group called the Dot Yikud or something like that. It's, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I think it's a real Hebrew term, but they're sort of a an unknown sect of Judaism in the game. And the purpose of them in the game is to deliver you this incredible technology. But the reason they have it is their religion, um, sort of in a similar vein to what we're talking about here, their belief is that the best way to be close to God is to be more familiar with the nature of the universe and the world we're living in. So they express this desire to, to learn and, you know, their, their desire to have these experiences through scientific discovery. And as a result, they're, you know, like centuries beyond what anybody else in the world would have at that time. But I'm even thinking about that, you know, maybe that was influenced by Gnosticism because it sounds kind of similar, you know, saying like, we don't understand the nature of what we're doing here. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And even, even what you were saying, I think a lot of people have a desire to understand 
the nature of the things that happen to us and the things that we experience. You know, there are UFOs and ghosts and psychic experiences that people have. You know, you see flashes of something and then it's gone or you experience some sort of, um, what would you call it? Some sort of knowing you know, that something's going to happen before it does, or you experience dread before you get bad news. Like precognition? Yeah, I mean, even just something as simple as when you look at somebody and they're not looking at you, they will eventually notice somehow. They, f- like, feel it, you know, and they turn and look at you, and I feel like there's, at some point in the future, we're going to understand what that is. There's probably something we can explain, and I feel like all these things bring us closer to... Uh, an awakening, maybe. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> you don't sound terribly confident. Hey, well, you know what Mark Twain said. History doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. There's a lot of rhyming going on today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that Gnosticism might be philosophy's best-kept secret or worst-kept secret, however you want to look at it, because people that I've talk to really don't know anything about it and i didn't know anything about it but looking into it just the shallow dive that we did it's absolutely fascinating and if you're a listener out there and maybe you're having some concerns with you know your religious views or some doubts or you you need some deeper understanding look into this there's so much more that we don't know than we do know. And I think that looking into something like this is critical for self-development. Whether you adopt these views or not, this is something that you need to know about before you, you know, go out in the world. I mean, it's really amazing and interesting at the very least. And it seems like it could be nothing less than life changing. Mm-hmm. Well said. So yeah, and I think I think the scariest concept we brought up is the idea that this simulation and the entities running it are indifferent; that they're just doing their job. You know, there's no because I could kind of hear it in some of your questions earlier, Jay, that you were used to the idea of good versus evil, but here we're talking about the potential that. It's not evil, it's just indifferent. It's just whatever's out there, whatever created this universe or this reality or the simulation, it's just doing its thing. Death is not the enemy, gentlemen. If we're going to fight a disease, let's fight one of the most terrible diseases of all, indifference. Well, you absolutely brought the fire tonight, and we really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day to come and school us yeah uh why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you and you know your website just go over your podcast again and let us know where we can find you yeah just go to the godabovegod.com again think of the monad and the demiurge or the one in the demiurge or type in a on bite and my website yeah has everything there in the front page including that list of books that i highly recommend uh, introductory articles but there's the podcast my books there's some videos there's a mailing list i have uh, sort of uh, special courses where we do q and a i mean there's a whole however you want to go about it uh, the 
how you feel it's right you can do it and of course there's a contact form if you want to just shoot me a line all right well definitely check it out guys it's amazing stuff and i guess that's all we've got thank you so much i enjoyed it thanks for having me guys yeah thank you absolutely take care you too we'll learn more after a quick break Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. One thing I need to say, though, that I didn't want to say while we were still connected was Meat Sack Desires is a great band name. Yeah, dude, I was totally going to say that was a great podcast name. (laughs) (laughs) But this was a very, a very interesting interview. I'm really glad that we did this and I'm glad that we were able to be connected for so long to talk about it because there are elements of it everywhere that I'm seeing now. You know, like I said, the the game, the dot you could, or again, I'm probably mispronouncing whatever that's supposed to be. I might be saying something horrific in whatever language, but the idea that there's a character who says that they're you know they're looking for god in like in reality they're trying to figure out how things work to find god and be close to god without all the spiritual bupkis i think is what he calls it (laughs) and i really like the I, i think i would i feel like gnosticism i feel like for one i have a very uh tentative grasp on it still sure you and i were texting before all this and I was telling you that, like every couple of pages, I feel like I'm just I'm losing my grip on whatever mm-hmm. I just read. Mm-hmm. And uh, but after talking about it for the last hour and a half, it feels a lot more like a philosophy. And I really like the idea that a lot of it comes down to listening to your higher self and trying to like remove your base meat sack urges mm-hmm. from the equation. Like that, that is the path. You know, it's not, uh, it's not just follow these rules and behave this way and you're good to go. It's, it's like, you have to live it and feel it. And it's like Bill Burr, Bill Bill Burr is, he has one of these things where he's talking about religion and how much he doesn't really like, he's not into it. He doesn't like it Mm -hmm. because he's talking about like, you know, God is everywhere, but you got to go down there to see him. Yeah. And he's saying like, everything you need is in, in, inside. Yeah. You do good, you feel good. Do bad, feel bad. Like, and that's kind of this. It's like, you know when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And it's it's a very magnetic philosophy. Mm-hmm. Unless you're looking at it as like, I am Roman Catholic. This is my religion. This is what I do. Like a robot, it's hard to argue with the philosophy. You may say, well, I don't know about the Demiurge, but it's hard to argue with the philosophy of looking within yourself to find God and not that you are God, but that you that's the place where you're going to find God, not not in a church or, you know, even in nature necessarily. You know, if you believe that you do have that divine spark, that God particle, that God gene, which I believe we all have, 
it's hard to argue that this isn't a path to travel to find that mm -hmm. you can say well you know this philosopher probably didn't mean that or, or whatever but if you strictly look at it as you have the divine spark inside you that's where you'll find god right right and i think a big part of our problem initially or at least mine maybe i'm putting you know i don't want to project on you but oh project there's so much there's so much in the research about well this this figure is actually this mm -hmm. that then they are this class of being mm -hmm. you know jesus is at at this level and is the male counterpart to the holy spirit like it's very specific uh -huh. in who is who and what what their role is and things like that and we kind of got into a lot of that which is why you know i was asking like can we just pull this back to a more basic description of the framework of it and i think the framework is gotten to the weeds a little bit yeah the framework is hard to argue with and you know like you were saying earlier whether it was on the show or before you know when you've talked about it a hundred times like he has uh you know miguel's gonna yeah go into detail way more than like he's gonna yeah. know way more he's gonna get into details that you're gonna get lost in because yeah he, he, both of us have a very passing familiarity with it as opposed yes. to being an expert essentially yeah i would listen to bedtime you know, stories by him he could do he should do audiobooks if he doesn't yeah. already he could just you know now obviously very intelligent guy glad to have him as the first guest as opposed to possibly a meth cooking shaman so <laughs> yeah i mean that could be pretty entertaining I wanted to ask him uh, if he About. had ever done DMT mm. or gone on a like a psychedelic journey with you know mushrooms or something like that. Who knows? That's a Joe Rogan question. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what a DMT trip is supposed to be like. I know some of the things I've experienced, which on DMT. No, not. I mean, not DMT, but psychedelics. <sighs> I think I told you about this, but maybe I haven't. I haven't really talked about this much, but since I brought it up in in the interview, like that I went through this period where I was kind of, you know, left with not a ton to do because I was trying uh -huh. to figure things out for myself and like what I wanted to do. And it led me to think about kind of the nature of, of what I've been doing with my life and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I got, I would say I got pretty depressed i don't like to say depressed because depressed is sort of a clinical Negative. thing nobody diagnosed me with anything like i was just really down all the time there were very few things that made me feel better or mm -hmm. like all right but i'm also mm -hmm. you know i understand that it's almost psychotic to imagine that you have to be happy all the time oh yeah but i would get this 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 thing that would happen to me where I would kind of like start having visions. It would happen every once in a while. Like it was this, I don't, I don't know. It's when I would think too deeply about some of this stuff and I, it would, I would have like flashes of scenes. Like I would mm -hmm. be seeing something else and experiencing something else. And it's really hard to describe. It would start with like this tingling feeling in like part of my body that would just spread. And 
outwardly where like, did the tingling start <laughs> uh kind of in like my shoulders oh okay that's higher up than i thought it would be <laughs> and kim saw it happen to me and, and another friend saw it happen to me one time too and they just said that i kind of like slumped over for a couple seconds but when it was done like it was this terrible it was like it's like being on one of those rides where they take you real high up and just drop you it's like being in free falls what it feels like Superman. But it would serious ride. Yes, but it would feel like I was gone for like days. Like it would happen, I would kind of like slump over for a second and then I was back. Like seconds, mm-hmm. but for me it felt like it's like I what were we talking about? Like it feel like I this feels like days and days ago now. It was mm-hmm. it was the strangest thing. Never experienced anything like that before. Haven't experienced it since. It happened a handful of times. But I almost wonder if it's kind of a similar thing or, the you know, at least the, the time dilation aspect of it. Well, you know, like I said earlier, the only time is now. There is no past and there is no future. There's only now. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of... Uh, DMT. Kind of. What? DMT. DMT? No. No, I'm scared, honestly. I mean, I would probably do it, but I would be scared. Uh, But a time is kind of a construct, right? We can't live yesterday or tomorrow. We can only live right now. Right. And we are so obsessed with putting things in boxes and organizing everything that... You know, it doesn't work that way with time, but I can understand how you having a an experience where you have sort of a warped sense of time could be really disturbing. Yeah, the whole thing was really disturbing, and I've I've since talked to people who've had like real genuine depression to see like, oh yeah, have you ever had this? And they all looked at me like, no, that is not a part of like any sort of depression. No, like I don't know what I don't know what the fuck happened to you. I was like, oh, okay, cool. The the only time essence with depression for me is that it, it and you know, I, I am bipolar, so I've had lots of experience with depression. It's it seems like it's never going to end. That's like the time problem with depression is you don't see like, oh, in two days, you know, I'm going to be doing this and it'll be better. All you can see is like, you know, I guess you're living in the now, but you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel and this wasn't even just never anything like what you're saying oh man people go on dmt and like on mysterious universe they've talked about stories where a guy did dmt or ayahuasca or whatever and lived what he said felt like 30 years as like uh like a bedspread like he was just a bedspread he was just like on and he was like at peace with it he was like this is this is what i do I'm just folded up here on this like decorative bedspread. Like, oh, I'm getting washed. I'm getting put back. Like, going in this chest. Like, depending on your life, that could be better. Depending on what you're going through. Oh, great! I'm fucking Rosie and Bar's bedspread. Or it could be, hey, you know, I'm. I don't know. Insert famous females hottie right now. Uh, Their bedspread. So. The philosophy is right. strong to look inside yourself to find that divine spirit. I think a lot of what would put us off is 
like I said, the specificity of the relationships between all the entities and the role they play. But yeah, that's with any religion. I mean, Kim hmm. is not the most like she wasn't raised in a religion, right? She's hmm. sort of vaguely Christian, but you know, not really familiar with the traditions or the stories. So sure. the few times that she's gone to church uh, events with me and my family, it's very odd. Like she's talked about how creepy it is. Like the priest says something and then all of you guys mm -hmm. say the same thing or like it's never one person kneels. It's everybody kneels. Everybody gets up. Everybody does the same thing at the same time. And it's like, yeah, because we've all been doing it yeah, our I entire lives. Kneel. And we also have the same sort of stories where it's super specific as to the relationships between people and what happened. And, you know, it just seems more reasonable to us, probably because we've been hearing it our whole lives, as opposed to this that we're hearing exactly. for the first time, you know, in, in some of our preliminary research and then talking to Miguel. Right. And, and you know, like he said, you can't just say, okay, explain Christianity. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can give the bullet points and the timeline if that's even real. So we're going to talk to Christopher Knoll tomorrow. Where do you stand on Bigfoot in general? I don't know. Well, let's start off. Possible or impossible? Possible. Ape or alien? Or human ancestor, maybe? Uh, I think more likely to be human ancestor adjacent at least. Okay. So in this episode with Christopher Noel, so in his first book that I read, Bigfoot Habituation Sites, Our Life with Bigfoot, he goes and stays with families that have Sasquatch on their property and that actually interact with them. Hmm. So it's it's an interesting book and you know, just I guess I should just say I'm all I'm balls deep on Bigfoot dude uh, I have no doubt that the Patterson Gimlin film is authentic do you know what you know the film I'm talking about with Patty that's walking through the creek yeah um, there's been you know debunking by people that I think really are just interested in debunking and not interested in I guess putting forth what reality could be. If that make does that make sense, or does that sound like yeah? Really some people snobby? are more interested in saying it's not this than putting forth a theory. You know, to just to. I mean, even The Simpsons made fun of it. That particular film. Mm -hmm. Like, there's an episode where Homer gets covered in mud and he's like trekking through the woods and he looks like that. Mm -hmm. So that's his first book. The one that he'll probably want to talk about more is Sasquatch and Autism where he brings forth a bunch of parallels between uh, first off autism in general and then more specifically the savant aspect of autism where you know people have this just superhuman ability almost like there's a, a guy that I work with all he wants to do is play tic-tac-toe and he puts his he's got to be X's and they have to go in the same spot every time but if you say hey so and so uh, what's 467 times 381 and he'll be like oh, 12,462 tic-tac-toe please 
mm-hmm. and he, you know, just math. And it's not akin to, you know, like the autistic child that can hear a Mozart symphony once and play it on the piano and violin at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nothing like that. But I love Bigfoot. So. Yeah. But hopefully the Crypt Keepers will enjoy that episode. So that'll be coming up in next week. I'm probably going to do an episode of Movie Howl after this if Joe's available. Uh, the Gray Man. I think it was. Oh, yeah. On the one with Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling. Yeah, yeah. I saw a preview for that. Is it based on the, the Gray Man or the Gray State? Uh, it's based, a lot of it is, is based around this concept that at a point the CIA was taking convicts and using them as like disposable hitmen. Okay. That's just sort of a lead in though. It, it's a, it's kind of a cliched story of, you know, like inside jobs. Mm-hmm. One of those things where it's like, oh, the bad guy is really... You know somebody not who you think it is like you're being used in a way that you don't understand that kind of thing it was very good though yeah i would definitely recommend it it was super entertaining was it netflix or yeah yeah it's on netflix yeah i I did see the um preview and i just i thought it was based i mean it was the preview was like ryan gosling running down a hallway or something that i saw but i just assumed it was based on the uh, movie the gray state have you seen that Mm-mm. it's pretty interesting um, i'm not going to tell you anything about it but you should you should check it out just you know watch a preview or something and see if it would be something that would interest you but it's a it's a wild story we should do a show on it one day okay but i thought man that would be perfect if like the gray man was like related to the gray state and you guys could do that and then we could do the gray state and it all link up together real well but that's all we've got for you tonight on cryptique we hope you enjoyed the show and don't forget to check out miguel's podcast aeon bite for a deeper understanding of gnosticism good evening crypt keepers <laughs>